Hello, I'm Regina Botras and this is Backstage, where we talk with the who's who on stage, in dance, comedy and performing arts, speaking with the leading theatre makers of our times and how they came to the stage and what drives them and inspires them. My guest is Erica J. Brennan, the writer of The Hero Leaves One Tooth, which is on at King's Cross Theatre at Broadway, um, or it's KXT on Broadway is the new name for it. Erica is a writer, director, and producer of live performance. She's directed around Sydney for over 10 years. She's written dozens of short and one-act plays for young people, had numerous full-length works produced for Old 505 Theatre. She's been the creative director of Woodford Folk Festival and their multi year site-specific large-scale puppet show Island and Island 2. She's a founding member and leading dividing artist for Ninefold, a physical theatre ensemble. She's worked and developed for Elbow Room Theatre. Look, she's done so, so much um, around the town and she's here to talk about her new production, the written piece, which is coming from the 14th to the 29th of Broadway. Welcome, Erica. Thank you, Regina. It's uh, lovely to be here. (laughs) <laughs> Lovely to have you. So this work um, is, I saw it described as a love letter to the body horror. Um, fascinating. Let's like dig in. How, where did this, what is it? What is uh, this work that you've written? Uh, yes. So it started out as a short play that was kind of uh, a response to um, some rather negative experiences I had traveling overseas just with being really overwhelmed with the amount of um, uh, like negative attention I was getting from people just from walking in the street. I was, I would sort of describe it as just by simply existing female in public uh, seemed to kind of invite a lot of negative attention. And I had experienced this at home a little bit, but for some reason on this trip, I was away for a couple of months and it it just really escalated. Uh, And it really got under my skin this time. I came home not long after that and uh, the Me Too movement sort of uh, exploded and uh, all of a sudden you have this big uh, collection of stories of people experiencing similar things to what I was experiencing and obviously where things had escalated, Uh, women being put in situations that were just completely inappropriate and the pain and the grief that kind of came out of that. And as I entered into the discussion, talking talking with friends and sort of, I guess, talking in public a little bit more about it as well, one of the things that came up for me was just um, feeling constantly frustrated by uh, people, and it was often men, not believing the experience of just just how exhausting that kind of harassment uh, or or interactions are. And uh, so like a rather uncharitable thought kind of bubbled up, which is just like, oh, well, I think I'll give you something to be afraid of, like like I have been in the past. And so I was really captivated by the myth of uh, vagina dentata, which is women spontaneously growing teeth. Uh, in their vaginas and just how terrifying a concept that might be to people who who would wish um, harm in particular sexual violence on women. And so I wrote a short piece that just sort of looked at the aftermath of that, um, set, set in a lot of sort of like a dinner party style thing, uh, comedy of manners where the thing that is really horrible is just not being talked about uh, until the very end when it all erupts to the surface and we sort of have to confront this thing that's happened and whether or not it's a good thing or, or it's actually just kind of perpetuating violence um, into the future. Yeah, so th- that's where it started. Wow. It's turned into like a one-act play. That's what's going on at, at KXT. Um, it's got some songs in it. Uh, I've worked with a, an incredible lyricist to, to write some songs to sort of capture the mood 
um, of it. And uh, we're working with a video artist and everything. It's kind of really just a bit of a sensory extravaganza uh, and a one-act play that sits inside that. Still that comedy of matters. You watch people arrive, you watch things go horribly wrong, and then the truth comes to the surface at the end. Wow. Where were you travelling when you had that kind of, you know, those experiences? Uh, I spent most of my time in America and Turkey. So in America, walking home alone at night was really full on. Nothing nothing bad happened to me. Uh, nothing, nothing escalated, but it was just walking from the train station to the apartment where I was staying, you would just get constantly catcalled like, you couldn't go two or three paces wow. without somebody trying to strike up a conversation with you, making a comment about what you were wearing um, or asking you to do something for them. Uh, by the time I got to Turkey, it was it was quite intrusive. I would get I would get touched a lot. I would get like pushed to the side of sidewalks a lot. Um, I had people follow me and all that sort of stuff. It was it was really overwhelming. Ironically, the the more conservative towns that I travelled in, that was less of a problem. But some of them more like liberal places or maybe considered liberal places were really difficult for a western woman traveling on their own i don't think i i think i was quite naive to to be honest to do to do that on my own for as long as i did and i don't think i could do it again gosh it sounds like i don't know a a throwback to the 70s or something um and especially to think of you know the us and and those experiences so how did you come and then write this into a work like who are the characters in this kind of conversation that are around the dinner table and what are their sort of I guess attitudes that you're um I guess you've got people conflicting ideas or something at play yeah well I think like in the early days there was a couple of really strong images that I wanted to work with so I I knew that I wanted to do a dinner party play because I loved the idea of a woman standing up at a dinner party to give a toast uh, and, and and talking for a long time when no one could interrupt her. And in that long speech, she was just going to explain how, how terrible it was, the, the existence that she'd kind of lived. Um, and I, I think that being in reaction to just like having so many conversations with people and not being believed or being talked over the top of, and I was like, well, I'll, I'll create a situation where this woman can just talk uninterrupted about something that is incredibly frustrating and is just full of anger um, and everyone and everyone at the table is just going to have to listen to her because uh, and really understand the perspective that she's coming from. Uh, so that was kind of like the centerpiece of, of it. Like I sort of was like that. I know that's what the climax is going to look like. And then I started to think about, well, who needs to be at that table to hear to hear that that kind of speech? Obviously, that speech is for the audience as well when you're thinking of the meta theatrics. But in world, who is it that needs to be at that table to kind of hold those metaphoric spaces? So despite like kind of against my instincts, which is to put predominantly um, uh, women on stage, it was just at the time there wasn't, a, when I first wrote it, there wasn't a lot, as many roles for women. Uh, but kind of in opposition to that instinct, I ended up peopling the that table with a lot of men. Try, tried to do a bit of a um, diversity across like age um, and gender uh, or like sexual orientations just so that it, it felt um, like a little bit of a melange of, of society. Uh, and that they were all just going to have to sit there and and listen to her. Um, so though that was kind of like the core idea. And then then I thought in terms of characters, I actually would like to make, I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, but it has turned into a really fruitful uh, journey. But I, I got a really strong sense that I wanted all of the characters in this play to be difficult to be on their side. I wanted everyone to just really have a really strong foil. They, they were doing behaviours that were just like, oh, God, these guys are a mess. I think because what I was trying to explore was this idea that 
um, trauma just continually can continually impact you in, in ways that are kind of unknown. It can really drive some of our our worst behaviours as humans, particularly if it's not addressed but, and we don't know how to process it. So I wanted all of these people to kind of come to this dinner party with their own motivations for it not going well. And as we kind of get to know them, we're like, oh, it's it's kind of difficult to agree with the actions you've taken. Just to really, just to really keep the audience, uh, I think, like constantly having to assess whose whose side they're on or, or how they're going to approach this. Because I think talking about the eradication of sexual assault or talking about that imbalance uh, between the sexes is really difficult and uncomfortable. And I, I do think it kind of requires us to really continually reassess the information that's coming to us. So, yeah, all, all I, it's it's funny, like all the characters on the paper, I feel are quite deplorable at times there's maybe one that I think behaves with a lot of integrity throughout the whole thing but every everyone else really has a foil it's either revealed really early on or you kind of come to understand that by the by the end um and that 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 was kind of how I decided what 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 I wanted them to be and then I started drawing from I think I was in my late 20s when I started uh writing it I was really drawing on that feeling of like when you all get friends together to have like a, a your first sort of couple of adult dinner parties and you're all performing adulthood, but you're all a little bit shit at it as well. So I started to draw characters <laughs> from there, really wanting it to represent, I think, the young adults that I that I was engaging with because these were the conversations that I was having and the sort of people I was having them with. My um, friends are not that much of like they they don't behave as badly as these guys by any stretch. <laughs> I was going to ask you, did you have some kind of, you know, mock dinner, like conversations around this as your writing, you know, process or how, you know, did you get that kind of conversation going? That would be a great idea <laughs> as far as a development. Um, <laughs> most of the early drafts of this work were done pretty, pretty solo. Uh, so when it was, it was a, it was a 10 minute piece at first. And that was just something that I wrote in a couple of weeks, kind of after I came back uh, from overseas and submitted to like, I think a short play reading night and, and it got in there. Mm-hmm. And so that was a very solo kind of piece that it was very, very stilted in a, in a short piece. It's like a short story. You know, you kind of have to have a twist at the end and everyone's a little bit of a stereotype or an archetype. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say that that was necessarily, um, really based on like actual conversations or how that sort of ebb and flow works. Uh, and then by the time it got to like a 25 or a 35 minute piece, I would still say that it was, I, I hadn't really thought about the realities of, of like what a dinner party might look like. I think I was just so in those conversations that I was in that life of having dinner parties with friends and, you know, these kind of group outings where, you know, conversations would sort of tumble and it would get heated at some point and then that would de-escalate. Somebody would turn up that you don't really know who they are and they they would have these opinions that were just wildly um, uncool. So I think I think it was just very much like drawn from, you know, what was going on. And I, but, you know, I was writing it over from from when I started writing it to when we're going up at KXT first previews on Friday, it's been about a six year process, and I feel like I've kind of just lived a lot of those dinner parties. It wasn't probably until mm. like the end of this year when we had a lot of actors come in to develop the work that we really looked at that kind of dinner party esque sort of feel. Um, but right. the piece the piece is very situated like in stylized sort of horror genre, so I didn't draw too much from like a naturalistic sort of conversational style. Though those things are sort of present there, but it's got a very 
um, very particular point of view that it sort of wants to express. And that's like, that's much more based, I think, in a horror genre where there's lots of stillnesses and silences and you don't quite know what's going on. These guys have information that maybe the audience doesn't. Ah, maybe tell me a little bit about the how the visual stuff is working. You say you've got video and songs written. I imagine they're actual performative songs. Is that sort of part of the show? Tell me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm really glad you asked about the songs. When I when I first wrote this piece, I I had it in my head that uh, every every new piece of performance should include a live song and a group dance mm. because th those were the things that kept me going back to the theatre. Like I think you know, there's something about hearing live voices sing while you're in the space with them that is just magic. And the same thing with like a big group dance scene, like when everyone is moving together regardless of whether you're a professional dancer or not, like those things are just, they're, they're fun. They really, they really like, I think, hone in on what the magic of live theatre is. So, but again, perhaps a little naively, I was like, this this is going to have both of those. Um, mm. the, the dance sequence didn't, didn't stay. It, it existed as part, yeah. it existed as part of the dinner party for a long time. And then as it kind of grew, that was one of the darlings that got cut and that's fine. Uh, but the songs all have, for me, have always functioned. There's one that start that starts the piece, and there's one that finishes it, and then there's now one that happens right in the middle of the of the play. The ones at the beginning and the end for me are really about like giving audiences, like when you're going into a play, giving you a transition time, where like there's this beautiful sensory thing happening, and you're getting some information about the world from it, but it's more of a mood expressor and sort of a, a scene setter. And so as, like, your heart rate's going down and you're sort of, like, settling into your chair and your eyes are getting used to, like, the lights, what they're happening and you're forgetting about, you know, the traffic that got here, you just have, like, two and a half minutes to just kind of settle into it. So by the time the narrative part of the story starts, you're already, you're there and you're ready. So it's a really, like, a preparatory event for the audience to come in while just, like, letting little bits and pieces of information of the world start to bleed through. Uh, and then similarly with the end song, um, I'm hoping, like, it's a pretty intense piece. Uh, it, it really has, yeah. like, found this sense of, like, th there's a lot of suspension that happens throughout the piece and I'm thinking people's heart rates will probably go up and just be like, oh, my God, when are they going to let us off the hook? So similarly at the end, um, there's a song that just sort of helps. It, it sort of provides, like, a bit of a commentary on what has just happened by the end of the play, but it also provides just a bit of a sensory experience for the audience to regulate again just just to bring you out of where it is that you've been again it plays for quite a long time um they're these beautiful original songs uh with lyrics by a wonderful man called jake nielsen who just like is an absolute an absolute genius the the songs not only are incredible mood setters but the lyrics are just uh, beautiful and layered and detailed so that final song will sort, you know, sort of take you out and maybe like lift you up a little bit when maybe the ending is maybe doesn't offer you that I'm hoping that people feel different about the ending depending on yeah the experience they have uh, and then the one in the middle uh, sort of acts as a bit of a break to reality so that the one in the middle aligns with all the video art elements so what you see on stage for the most part is this rather pleasant if haphazard and excruciatingly painful um, dinner party, and you'll recognise all that. But at moments that feels like something from the inside is trying to intrude, like trying to push through, and it's the thing that they're not talking about and that's going to be kind of represented through the way that the video art breaks into the space. That song that happens in the middle is kind of the the climax of that, whereby you get a complete um, two-ish minute song that sort of explains what it is that's um, that's lurking behind the corner that no one is wanting mm. to talk about. 
so yeah, real, real kind of moody and visceral, try, trying to let those two worlds sort of coexist um, for the most part quite uncomfortably. Because you are talking about, you know, like sexual violence and the body and it, it is there potential for it to be triggering for people? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a really valid question. I think in the writing of it uh, and I think in my own interests uh, as a theatre maker, there isn't really any explicit um, violence that's sort of shown. Uh, my focus is really on the aftermath of what, if, if you are someone who has experienced um, assault or violence or any kind of violation like that, you know, the, it's the experiences that are after that you often end up really needing to process a lot. Like, And I think all of the text is sort of focused on the, the experience of what it is to uh, sort of go through this trauma and the aftermath of it. There isn't really anything that is explicitly violent or explicitly traumatic. There's a lot of stuff that is talked about and hinted at, and certainly uh, um, there the the way that the visuals and the lights are going to be layered over it uh, does have the potential to be quite sensorily overwhelming. Um, so I think I think you know. Uh, Audience discretion should absolutely be applied to this if you're in a place where you like we we have trigger warnings and that sort of stuff and um, everything that's kind of in our content, like our little bias and that sort of stuff is is a pretty good indication of what you're going to um, get in and see. There's not really any like um, any yeah we're not we're not trying to withhold anything so that people are going to be trapped in situations that that, that they don't want to be in. Um, yeah. We were we were we've got like we've got a number of um, people in the cast that like you know, no no one that we've worked with has flagged that it's too overwhelming or that we've done or that there's necessarily potential for great harm. But, like, we obviously don't know what people are going to be bringing to the space. Uh, but I think things like the songs, things like there is no graphic um, showing of violence, we're certainly not lingering on that. We're really lingering on the after effects of it and what do, what do we do, how do we change that, what do we do with that, more so than I'm not really interested in re-traumatising anyone. It really is kind of looking mm. at how do we process that. There is yeah. there is like a moment that the, 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 the most violent moment happens off stage, which is very deliberate. I may get criticised for that. There, there may be an argument to be like, well, if you're going to talk about this, why are you, why are you putting that moment off stage? But I think for me, who has lived in this body and I've seen... A lot of explicit violence on stage. I was like, I don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. Um, particularly as we're sort of like trying to get that feeling um, of suspense and horror. It's much better to kind of do the unseen and let let people fill in the blanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the imagination does a lot more than the actual, you know, showing of something. So, do you, the vagina dentata. Do you know where that kind of originated from? Is that like a you know, is there a beginning for that or was it just an idea that you thought this is the way in? Uh, in terms of, like, do you mean in terms of, like, the mythology? Where is yeah. it coming from? Yeah. Uh, it kind of exists everywhere. It's mm. not It's not as well documented as you would think. Uh, and it, I, I've, I've gone back and read about it a number of times. I'm not, I'm not a perfect historian. I'm sure somebody <laughs> can track it a lot better than I can. But in, in the reading and the looking that I did, it seems to be a myth that kind of permeates across the globe. There's there's a handful of like different um, different uh, like origins for it, but unfortunately, most of them are actually like not very empowering towards women. Mm. The majority of the vagina dentata myths actually seem to come from men being terrified of women, inventing this myth. And in, in some places, they it would be spread as a rumor. 
Wow. Uh, as a thing that was actually happening uh, and that would inspire men to go out and actually escalate their violence against women, this idea that if they had teeth in their vaginas they were going to go and find things that would knock them out oh. was like something that seemed to happen again and again. And so it's just like this is, I mean, that is, that is heartbreaking. Um, there's a very, there's a popular movie in, in like the body horror sort of genre called Teeth, which is about a woman that develops it spontaneously and like she's just constantly getting assaulted and so she's constantly like, biting off men's penises and fingers and all that sort of stuff. And it's it's a fun sort of revenge fantasy, but, again, like you are just constantly watching this woman get violated. Oh, and it's, God. I was like, this is, I, I think there's something in here and it's more than just watching this woman go through hell. And then I, I found this one story, which is where the, the title comes from, that was maybe a little bit less misogynistic and horrible. It, it by no <laughs> by no means is perfect, but... It's. I think it's a name. It's Native American in origin. I did find the tribal name at some point, but it slipped my mind. Um, about about a hero who rescues an, another woman who's been cursed with dentata, and he gets her home, and he manages to knock out all her teeth except for one, um, because it feels really good when they have sex, and that's it. That's the only one that I could find that was like wow, like sort of sort of okay. <laughs> um, so that you know, that's kind of like the stuff that's in folklore. It's everywhere. It's kind of anywhere that it, sexual violence is experienced, it seems to pop up, which is kind of like everywhere. Uh, there is a device that has been built. Uh, built. I'm not sure the country of origin, but it looks like uh, it's like an internal. Um, it's like an internal condom for women, and it's got barbs in it, and it's an anti-rape device, so that if um, the vagina is penetrated, it will hook on to whatever it is that's penetrated and it cannot be removed except surgically. So like that that exists somewhere. So like these were all the things that we were kind of drawing on. And then I really liked the idea of um going like, well what if what if this was an evolutionary thing that happened? What if all of that trauma and that assault had been calcified like down through the generations? Um very softly influenced by um epigenetics, which is like a even this, this, you know, I'm not, again, not an expert in it, but some of the things suggest that there's potential uh, for the thing that wraps around DNA to sort of change us a little bit for a little while. And it can be associated with like environment and trauma. It's all like, I'm not a scientist. I don't want to say what it can and can't do, but it's kind of influence of these ideas of like, what if the body had gone through enough trauma that it decided to defend itself? That was wow. kind of like the origin of, of yeah, what was sort of happening in this world. My God, what a world you've been in. That's just... Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Has this changed a lot since that trip? Because the world has changed so much and there's so much more conversation about fighting back in a way, like you said, you know, body or or verbally. Um, since that trip that you went overseas and had those experiences and Me Too and everything and Weinstein, everything that's come out, since has your play then also adapted or are you able to feel like you can say more or you know how has it changed or influenced your work the changing of the world that's a great question um I mean I think I think it's allowed I think you know when it when it first it went on it went to a public performance in its short version mm. back in 2017 I believe and I think between now and then I think the play that I wrote, I think that I am trying to talk about something a little bit more broader than, I guess, like the sexual dynamics between men and women and that, that mm -hmm. violence that seems to occur between them. Trying 
really unpack trauma as, I guess, like a more broad or overarching idea and how it actually can impact everyone and that, that like a cycle of revenge and vengefulness is just not really going to get us anywhere. So I think I think now that a lot of those stories are out in the conscience and everything, this play would probably be read with a bit more of a broad uh, perspective on it. So hopefully, hopefully what we're looking at while maybe um, having its origins and something very specific could actually be applied to anything that's sort of looking at going like what it, what is happening when you go through something where you, you're made to feel unsafe or your power is taken away from you and what do you do, what do you kind of do then? Um, so I think, I think yeah, I think that since then it will probably allow it just to resonate with a, a lot more different people um, than it maybe would have just in like its kind of purest, pure feminist rage sort of origins that it sort of was initially uh, conceived in. Um, and I think just like the, the biggest difference for me is, yeah, I think that I think those conversations will change it. But I think also my, my confidence in in an ability to do something that's a little bit strange and a little bit odd, uh, I think is just grown. So that the piece that you're going to get versus the one that when it was originally written, I think is is something quite bizarre. But it's got a really strong fingerprint um, of what it kind of wants the or the invitation that it's making to the audience to sort of step into this very scary place in a, in a very safe environment, which is the theatre, and, and hopefully that can really um, help you process something or just get keep that conversation alive to just sort of like more future thinking stuff as opposed to the vengeance that maybe we've been consumed by for a long time and yeah. rightfully so. Yeah, indeed. Igniting conversation. It sounds very, very exciting. Erica Brennan, thank you so much. Can't wait. Thank you. Well, that was Erica Brennan with The Hero Leaves One Tooth at KXT on Broadway, 14th to the 29th of July. It's brought to the stage by Rat Catch Theatre in association with Bakehouse Theatre Company. It just sounds fascinating. <laughs>